Great. Well, I'm, I'm excited to be here this morning. Um, this is kind of fun, isn't it? Have you guys seen this? Hang dared me to walk out here. I'm not going to do that. I'm not sure that's a reliable structure here. Plus, I don't really like heights, so we're going to leave that where it is, but it is kind of fun. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Matt Rumbaugh. I, uh, my wife, Christy, and I lead the small group that meets in Random Hills, and, uh, and I serve as one of the elders, and so I'm excited to be here. We are starting a series. It's a short series that we'll do the next few weeks called Soul Songs. It's a study of the Psalms. I am really excited about this. Psalms is my favorite book of the Bible. I love the intimacy of the Psalms. I love the the poetry of the Psalms. I love how we can find ourselves so often in the Psalms and find ways to pray and experience the person of God and the person of Jesus in such unique uh, ways. And so I am excited to do that. We're going to be in Psalm 36 this morning. So if you have a Bible and want to uh, take a quick peek there, you are welcome to do that. Uh, But let me set things up this way. You know, one of the things that's been sort of big in the news this year, and many of you know more about this than I do because I'm not so much with the technology, but artificial intelligence, chat GPT. How many of you have gotten involved in this a little bit? See a couple hands. Yes, it's like mostly younger people. Yes. So yeah, I I appreciate that. Well, I was at a conference last month uh, for people in the learning and development space. That's my day job. I do training, professional development, uh, facilitation, and instruction. But at this conference, I kept hearing about this uh, facet, all the different ways that people are using ChatGPT, artificial intelligence. And I learned about something or someone called Karen AI. Have you guys heard about this? How many of you have heard of this? It was new to me too. Okay, we'll learn something together this morning. So it's based on Karen Marjorie, who is apparently a very popular social media figure. Full confession, my daughter had to explain to me who this is. Um, she has a big Instagram following or whatever it is. Uh, but she, uh, and a company that does artificial intelligence, uh, kind of came to her, made her a deal. They took over 2,000 hours of YouTube content that she had produced, and they synthesized it with a chat GPT program so that she can become, for a dollar per minute, your girlfriend. And I put that in quotes intentionally. She will talk with you about your day. She will plan a vacation together with you. I don't know how you're actually supposed to go on that together, but she will do that for you. She will post photos of you together. She will tell you how awesome you are and how much uh, you uh, please her, all these things. She will do this, anything you ask, for a price. So the program went live earlier this year. In the first week alone, they made over $100,000. And so the company that put this together expects to make over $5 million this year, and they have more coming. And as for Karen herself, the real one, not the uh, AI version of it, she says that her goal in participating in this project is to, quote, cure her followers of loneliness, cure her followers of loneliness. So this is clearly meeting some type of need or scratching some kind of itch, right? Uh, I'm a little uh, freaked out about all this, but um, that's okay. Uh, Some of this, I'm sure, is just curiosity. It's kind of new and novel and how does all this work, but that's a lot of traffic. That's a lot of money, right? This can't just be curiosity. Something's happening here. But what might be the problem here? What do you guys think? Go ahead and shout it out. What might be the problem? Loneliness? Okay, what else? She is not real. She's not real. Yes. You nailed it. Way to go. Awesome. Yes, she is not real. She's a facsimile. 
You can pretend that she's a girlfriend. You can pretend that she has affection for you. You can pretend that she's interested in you. You can pretend any number of things with her, but what you can't pretend, at least not with any integrity, is that she loves you. There's not love here. Whatever it is that these users are getting from these interactions, you can't call it love because she's not real. And so I'm bringing this up this morning because I see many people in a similar situation when it comes to the person of God. They are interacting with him as if he's a facsimile, as if he's an artificial intelligence, rather than seeing him for who he is and trusting in him accordingly. And people, my friends, the consequences of this are disastrous. So what am I talking about? How does this happen? How did we get here And what do we do about it? That's what I want to share with you today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Psalm 36. I'm going to put my glasses on so that I can read this effectively. Psalm 36. We're going to read the whole passage here, and then I'll walk you through some things that I want to highlight uh, together. So Psalm 36, this is David writing. You've got a little note in the introduction that tells you about this. Let's start in verse 1. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, and not, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down unable to rise. I really love the practice that Pastor Joshua shared with us last week when he said, this is the word of God. This is the word of God. Amen. All right. So we have here, oops, I forgot to take my glasses off. Sorry about that. Uh, We have here a classic example of Hebrew poetry. How many of you took poetry in college or high school, something like that? Okay. You guys can help me here. I love poetry. I I, I took a a couple poetry classes in college. I, I don't read it as much as I want to anymore. But poetry in English tends to be about meter and rhyme. It's about the pattern of words. Hebrew poetry is a little bit different. Instead, it's emphasizing comparison and contrast. So it loves this pattern of this Not this, this, or in our case, it's not this, but this. So this one puts two ideas against each other. One is the fear of God, and one is the love of God. In fact, this this idea right here, this is our big idea today. It is through the fear of God that we experience the love of God. It is through the fear of God 
that we experience the love of God. Let me show you what I mean. I want to highlight verse 1 in particular, and then we'll walk through. In fact, I think this is on our screen. We have two key words or phrases in the sentence that I think are going to help us understand this in more detail. The first one is wicked, and you can see that that's underlined on your screen. Now, when, when you and I hear this word, our thoughts might go to the movies or a cartoon character or something like that. I think we're going to have this on the screen here in a second. Yep. So we've got some villains there. We've got Cruella DeVille. We've got the whole Marvel thing. I'll confess, I don't watch Marvel movies, so I don't know who these people are, but, uh, but hang, help me out. Uh, or the classic villain, Darth Vader. Uh, most of the, because, you know, this might be the picture that's in our head, most of us don't think of ourselves as wicked. When the word wicked pops into our head, we think of people like this. So the Bible actually has a very specific meaning when it uses the word wicked, and it's not this. So let me show you what I mean, and then we'll get into it. So when the Bible says the word wicked, it's referring to someone who willingly and purposefully violates God's standards. This is often used to describe someone who refuses to acknowledge or obey the person of God. So when you put it that way, it sort of changes things a bit, does it not? Because I know those people. I know people who willingly disobey God. I know people who willingly don't acknowledge him. In fact, it kind of sounds like me sometimes. Maybe you feel that way too. So this psalm isn't talking about Darth Vader or Cruella DeVille or, you know, whoever pops into your mind when you use the word wicked. It's, it's talking about people like you and me. You and I are wicked. So the other phrase I want us to take a look at is the one, again, it's, it's highlighted there for you, and that is the fear of God. So if you've read the Bible at all, you know that this is a little uh, word phrase that pops up a lot. It's really prominent in the book of Proverbs. Uh, in fact, the book of Proverbs describes the fear as God as the beginning of wisdom. So do you want to know how to use a, or how to live a good life? As the Bible would say it, it starts with the fear of God. Now, again, those of us who uh, speak English as our first language not, may not quite get the full picture of what this means. We might think it means to be afraid of God, as if we're in a horror movie or in a, a scary uh, a theme park or something like that. But again, that's not what it means. Uh, what it means is reverence. In fact, our understanding of it, that's something there where something's hovering over me and some sort of threat to me, that's a recent understanding of the word. Up until about, say, the turn of the century from the 18th to the 19th century, most people would not have had a, a, a lack of understanding of this word. They would have sensed what it meant. But we've lost a little something with that word now. So let's get back to the root of it. It's not that we're afraid of God, that he's out to get us, or he's going to spite us, or strike us, or jump out of a corner, or, you know, it's not a horror movie experience. What it means is reverence. That is understanding who God really is is in his character and affording him the respect and reverence that he is due. Uh, the late, great Tim Keller, rest in peace, oh, praise the Lord for Tim Keller, he describes it this way. He says, fearing God is not mere belief in him, it is to be so filled with joyful awe before the magnificence of God that we tremble at the privilege of knowing, serving, and pleasing him. The, the awareness of who he is such that it pleases us to know him, love him, and serve him. So I just want to stop there for a second. This is showing us that the wicked one does not have the fear of God. They don't really understand who he is. Notice it says there is no fear of God before his eyes. 
So I want to double click on that just for a few minutes. Again, our big idea today is it's through the fear of God that we experience the love of God. The Bible shows us three primary ways that we lack the fear of God. That is, we misunderstand who he is and fail to give him the worship and affection that he deserves. Those three, or at least the three that I'm going to present to you today, are deny, defy, and redefine. Deny, defy, and redefine. So let's break those down a little bit. So the first one we want to talk about, ways that we lack the fear of God, is deny. I have been fascinated this year by a really terrific website by a researcher named Ryan Burge. It's called Graphs About Religion. Feel free to make a note if you're taking notes. It is worth spending some time on. He uh, does this thing where he digs really, really deep into data about the religious life of Americans, and his infographics are fantastic. In fact, they're, they're copyrighted, so I've not uh, reproduced them here. It is worth going to the site to see them in purpose. One of the things that he found is that from the uh, time 1998, to the year 2022, the percentage of Americans who identify as atheist has gone from 2% to 7%. I think that's interesting. I don't know about you guys. So this is eight people who call themselves atheists, people who believe there's no such thing as God, rose from 2% to 7%. Certainly an uptick, but not super dramatic. I don't know that that would have changed the game for us, but consider this. People who we would call nuns, not N-U-N, but N-O-N-E-S, nuns, the so-called nuns, that is no particular religious affiliation at all, that number rose from 5% to 30%. 5% to 30%. At the same time, the number of people who never attend religious services at all, not even Christmas or Easter or some of the classics, rose from 12% to 33%. So if you've had the impression that religious life in America is on the decline, you're not wrong. But what's interesting to me, at least, is that you need not call yourself an atheist to practically live as if God doesn't exist. The number of actual atheists is up a little bit, but not a lot. The number of people who are just checked out altogether is up way, way more. So for these people, it's not so much that God doesn't exist, it's that he doesn't matter. It's not that he doesn't exist, it's that he doesn't matter. Well, the Bible actually speaks to this. Psalm 14, verse 1 tells us, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Paul writes in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 about people who have a form of godliness but deny its power. So you don't have to be an outright atheist to deny who God is and show that you lack fear of him. The rest of us, we may not wear the term atheist, but it's not hard for us to live as if we do. You guys with me? Yeah. All right, so the second word I want to describe is defy. This is someone who might acknowledge that there is a God, at least in some form or fashion, but he or she is not willing to live by this God's command or instruction. So they might acknowledge there's a God, but he or she is not willing to live by his commands or instructions. The classic example in Scripture is Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. Many of you are probably familiar with this story. Uh, The people of, of Israel, the Hebrew people, are enslaved in Egypt. They've been that way for 400 years or so. A guy named Moses shows up, and he's got a message from God, says, let these people go. And Pharaoh says this. This is Exodus verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 2. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. 
So this is the classic example of someone who just outright defies the commands of God, but it shows up a lot in Scripture. In response to Pharaoh, God, the Scripture tells us that God hardens his heart. That is, he gives him over to his desire. He gives them over to his defiance, and the, disaster, uh, the, the consequences for Pharaoh are disastrous. It's the same for you and I. If we live in defiance of God, we experience the same thing. He will give us over to these demands, and the consequences are always disastrous. You do not want to be someone who lacks the fear of God by denying him. Now, that said, I imagine that in a room like this, we might, have, we might not have that many this morning who are in the deny or defy category. Maybe. Certainly possible, but I would think that a a group of people here, we've taken time on a holiday weekend to be here at 10 o'clock. It's a little early for some of you, I even know, Um, when there are lots of other things to do. We might not be in one of those categories. My guess is most of us wouldn't deny that God exists, and most of us are not probably uh, overtly defiant of God or or his word. Instead, I think most of us, maybe even all of us, are in this third category, and that is we redefine God. And this one might be, in fact, I think it is, the most dangerous one of all. So what do I mean when I use the term redefine? The idea in its most simple form is that I do not seek out or accept the character of God or the instruction of God as shown to us in Scripture. Instead, I substitute my own version through some other means. Usually, it is to take some command from Scripture that I don't want to do and soften it a little bit so, it's, so, it's not really, uh, it's, it's so I don't need to do it. Or it's some act of sin that I do want to do that I know is clear in Scripture, but I make it more palatable, easier for me to make go away. It's essentially choosing to define good and evil or right or wrong on our own terms instead of by God's terms. In fact, it's a twist on the language of creation from Genesis where God, it says that God made men and women in his image. Instead, when we redefine, it's us trying to make God in our image. This is another classic pattern in Scripture. It's all over the place, but I think the most powerful example is again in Genesis. It's chapter 3. Many of you would uh, be familiar with this. This is where Satan, in the form of a serpent, talks to the woman Eve and invites her to take fruit from the, the tree of good and evil. Uh, and, and she at first resists, but then he says, did God really say you're not supposed to eat from this tree? Did he really say you're not supposed to eat from this tree? So see, he, he's not outwardly defiant. He's not even denying that God has given instruction here. Instead, he's redefining. He's changing the terms So it's that much more a temptation to Eve. So Adam and Eve joined this conversation. They talked themselves into it, and that's how they fall. And you and I have been dealing with the consequences ever since, and you and I do the same thing ever since. When when there's something about God's character or instruction that's inconvenient to us or cuts against the grain somehow, we substitute our own version of right and wrong or our own version of good and evil so it's a little more palatable easier for us to work around. You might hear some things, or you might even think these things, where I know God's got this thing, but I think God just wants me to be happy. And this thing, this relationship, this habit, this practice, the thing that I do, it makes me happy. It makes me happy. So God must be okay with it, right? Maybe not. Or you might hear this one, maybe even think this one. I know the Bible talks this way about blah, 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 some issue, but this is a different time now. 
we're modern thinkers now. We know better now. So we don't really have to obey what God says in Scripture there. We want to have keen ears for this. It's usually a way for us to turn something we either can't do or don't want to do into something we prefer that makes us feel better about ourselves. I'm going to share with you a silly example. I got permission from my wife to do this. The other night, she wanted to practice taking the U.S. citizenship exam. Don't ask. She thought it would be fun. It was kind of, it was kind of fun. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so just the basics here. If you want to take the citizenship exam, there's a battery of 100 questions. You're supposed to study them. When you take the test itself, you're given 10, and you have to get 6 out of 10 correct. So our exercise was to go through all 100 questions and see if Christy could get 60 of them right. Spoiler, she passed. She got 85 correct. I'm so happy that my wife is not going to get deported. This is really great for me. Anyway, so one of the questions was, in what year was the Constitution written? If you know, don't say. Uh, But her answer was 1776. And so I I had to tell her that that was incorrect. She protested a little bit. And so I, I had to gently, gently, it was gentle, right? Yeah, remind her that what she was thinking of was the Declaration of Independence. And we're going to celebrate that in just a couple days. And I wasn't going to do this, but I am a history nerd, so I have to do this. Did you know the Declaration of Independence was actually uh, agreed to on this day, July 2nd? So today is really Independence Day. How about a hand? Yeah. All right. Yay, America. Anyway, we celebrate on the 4th for another reason. But anyway, so, so I tried to explain, you're not thinking of that. You're, th- you're thinking of the Declaration of Independence. And she responded with, well, if that had been the question, then I'd have the right answer. So I'm happy I'm happy about this. And I had to respond with, I'm glad you're happy. That's still the wrong answer. 1787, by the way, is when the Constitution was written. So, you see, many of us do something much like my wife did. Not to pick on poor Christy here, but many of us do something. We either don't know or don't like something God wants us to do, and so we change the question. We change the terms to be something that we prefer that's more convenient for us, that doesn't put us out, that doesn't uh, involve something that we either don't want to do or don't know how to do. I know this is a silly example, but this is a really serious concern. When we twist God's word in this way, it does not reflect the fear of God. In fact, it's the path to wickedness. I want to dig into this a little bit more. In my observation, this is showing up a lot more in our culture, in our political discussions, in our ethics, in our conversations about sexuality and gender. Friends, we need to develop keen ears and learn how to listen. When you hear someone saying something like, yeah, I know the Bible says that God made them male and female, but now we know there's lots of other genders, and so we need to to, uh, uh, accept that and behave that way. Listen. You might be hearing somebody redefine. When you hear somebody saying, uh, I know the Bible says we should pray for our leaders, but they support lots of policies that I don't agree with, so I'm just going to ignore that. You might be hearing somebody redefine. Or when you hear somebody saying, I know Jesus said to love our enemies, even our political opponents, but he wouldn't have known what these people are trying to do. So I think it's okay if I mock them on social media or participate in all these crazy things. You might be redefining. Or, I know Jesus said we're supposed to take care of the sick and the poor and the marginalized and orphans and widows, but we have lots of government programs for that now, so I don't need to worry about that. Somebody else is going to take care of that. We might be redefining. So listen, 
Now, I don't know about you, but I know that I need to listen to myself first because I sometimes think this way. So when I find these thoughts rolling around in my head, it's worth it for me to stop, step back, and be like, wait a minute, am I listening to your voice, God, or am I trying to redefine? We don't want to do that. This one is so dangerous because it's subtle. It's usually not strident. It's usually not outwardly definite. We don't usually have to make a big scene about it. We slip into it. But when we do this, we're demonstrating that we don't have the proper fear of God. Whenever we deny or defy or redefine God, we are essentially saying, I don't need you. I don't want you. And that leads us down a tragic road. In fact, the text goes there, so let's explore that together. Let's look at verses uh, 2 through 4 here. Listen to what happens to the wicked, the one who doesn't have fear of God. If he flatters himself in his own eyes, his, that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. So notice what's happening here. The indifference toward God or the positioning against God kind of leads us down this road of self-flattery, of self-deception. We believe no one will find out. We might believe it doesn't matter. I define good and evil for myself, so I can just do whatever I want. And you know what? Nobody's going to find out in any way, so it doesn't even matter. But notice the slippery slope. When we go down here, it says that we do not, uh, we do not fear, we, where does it say? Yeah, we do not reject evil. So when we sort of, when we go down this road of denying, defying, redefining, we're saying we want to do good and evil for ourselves, we're actually not that good at it. We're not that good at it. And so we always end up in the place of evil because we stink at choosing between good and evil. Only the Lord can properly do that. And we'll spend, we'll spend some time on that in a second. It's a little bit like Karen AI. Remember her a second ago? You can call it whatever you like, but you can't say she's a girlfriend. You can't say you're experiencing love on that because you've used it for a certain purposes. You may be happy for a time. You may get some sort of uh, enjoyment from that, but it can't really satisfy you. Just like an artificial girlfriend can't really love you, neither can an artificial God, one that you have made up for yourself. So, what's God's response to this? Now, if this were me, and I had people that were defiant or denied my authority or tried to redefine my position this way, I would be angry. And I would, like, want to get them. And I would want to kick them out of my organization or something like that. But guess what? God is crazy, and he doesn't do that. Instead, he overwhelms us with his love. God's response is to remind us of his love. His covenant, never-ending, never-changing, can't help himself, wouldn't even if he could love. God's love is the most dominant force in the universe, and that is his response to our denial, our defiance, and our redefining of him. So there are three things I want us to see about this. The first is that God's love is grandiose. I know it's a little bit of a silly word, uh, but it's grandiose. The word grandiose means impressive because of uncommon largeness, scope, or effect. Let's read the text together. This is verses 5 and 6. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God, and your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord." 
So if you're familiar with Hebrew poetry, you might know that they don't use adjectives the same way that we do. Uh, instead, when they want to uh, have us experience something, they want to describe it, they use word pictures. So note what word pictures are being painted here. Extending, reaching into the heavens and the skies. Uh, higher than the mountains, beyond the deepest waters. Think scale, scope, breathtaking in awe and wonder. The language here is asking us to stretch our imagination. So let's, let's do this. Take a look at this. Maybe this will help. This is a picture from the James Webb Telescope. Have you guys been following this? Yeah, a couple of heads going. Yes, yes. So this is, what you're looking at here is something called the Carina Nebula. It is 8,500 light years away. Just to remind you of this, I know some of you know this, but that means that the light that is in this image took 8,500 years to travel to us so that we can see it and observe it. Never mind that it's one of the most sophisticated pieces of technology ever put together just so that we can observe this. 8,500 light years just so we can see it. So in this particular picture, you are witnessing the birth of several stars. The beginning of a star that, that would last thousands and thousands, like, I can't, I'm going to stop talking about this because I, I will demonstrate my ignorance about this. But, um, and in the background of this, we can't really see it. Trained observers can see this, but you and I wouldn't be able to see this. But in the background, you're seeing galaxies. Galaxies, mind you. Whole clusters of stars and planets and all of that. And there's more than one of them in this picture. Now I want you to think about the words that are in Scripture again. Your love extends to the heavens. Just think about that for a second. Your love, O oh Lord, extends to the heavens. We see a picture like this and we realize what we're looking at that tells us a little something about the love of God. It is big. It is vast. It is far-reaching. This may be a little much for some of you, so let's bring things down to earth just a little bit. You might recognize this. This is Mount Everest. I'm sure many of you know this is the tallest mountain on earth. What you might not realize is that the summit, the tippy top point up there, is 29,000 feet above sea level. Airplanes fly at 30,000 feet. So when you're standing on the top of Mount Everest, if you reach high enough, you could like scrape the underneath part of a plane. Okay, that might not literally be true, but it would feel that way, right? Airplanes fly at 39,000 or 30,000 feet. This is 29,000 feet. Now, I love our Appalachian Mountains. I go hiking a lot with my family and friends. This is a different deal altogether. To summit Everest is a multi-month effort. Uh, it is best done after years of training with a trained guide. Uh, we don't even begin to mention like how expensive it is to do this. There is nothing casual. This is not something that we do in a, in, a, in a morning and then we're back home for dinner or happy hour or something like that. The size and the scale of this push climbers to the limits of human endurance. God's love is that big. God's love is that impressive. God's love is that much to scale. And let me personalize a little bit about it. I want you to take a look at that. God loves you that much. God loves you that much. It is that mind-blowing. So God's love is grandiose. It is impressive in size and scope. 
I think the psalmist also wants us to see that God's love is a feast. Let's do something fun. I want you to turn to somebody that's around you. I want you to think of the best meal that you have ever had. Where were you? What did you eat? What was the experience? Chat about that for just a second, then I'll pull us back together. Okay, I know I'm probably cutting some of you off, but let me bring it back together here. Uh, hopefully, hopefully you heard about some great meals. Maybe some of you even learned a new restaurant to go to. That would be awesome, yeah. Um, so for me, one of the things that I thought about was I used to work in trade associations, and when you work at a professional or trade association, there is almost always an annual conference or trade show. Uh, and so being staff of one of these associations, uh, I get to go as just part of, um, it's work for me to go to these huge banquets. So I want you to think of like the biggest room you have ever been in. I know my family's over here going like, oh, poor Matt. Yeah, he has to go eat all this nice food. But yeah, it's amazing. So think of this like this huge giant banquet hall. There is food of every type all around the place. I really like shrimp. Boy, I've had some nights where I, I eat a lot of shrimp. So yeah, good times. Um, they are catered to the max. And of course, as an employee, it is all free for me. I can have whatever I want, as much as I want. Uh, it's, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's a good perk. Um, so if you're so inclined, you can enjoy a glass of wine. They don't charge you. Uh, sparkling water, whatever you want, as much as you want, and it's all free. Now let's go read these verses again here. How, let's see, let's see. Verses, let's pick up in verse 7. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. So I thought about that as I was uh, in, uh, reading this verse. That is what experiencing the love of God is like. It is a, like a giant feast. It's like being a trade show employee at the time for an annual conference. Sometimes that work is not fun, but sometimes it's really fun because you get to experience a good feast. It is the greatest dinner party you have ever been to. It is the nicest restaurant you have ever been to times infinity. The abundance of God. God wants us to experience his love as if it's a feast, as if we can never stop eating, drinking, enjoying him. And it is free to us for reasons we're going to talk about in just a second. His love is a feast. And I also love, verse 9 here is one of my favorites, uh, where it says, in your light we see light. I actually had a poster on my wall for a season that said this. The only way we even know what good is, is because he has shared his love with us. Yeah. Now bear in mind, elsewhere in Psalms, Psalm 23 to be precise, just a couple pages over, David writes that because of the Lord, that he can enjoy a feast in the presence of his enemies. Do we see this? Do we see that God is putting out a feast here in this verse for people who would call him an, an enemy? You and I, we treat him as an enemy sometimes. His response is to put out a feast for us. That's what David is writing here. What kind of God is this? Who is this? And why would he do this? 
Well, that gets back to the third thing I want us to see this morning. That is that God's love is shown to us in Jesus. Let's read verses 10 through 12 here. Hopefully I don't knock everything over here. Verses 10 through 12. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. So these verses actually show us something of a dilemma. How is it that we can experience the love of God when we are so wicked and arrogant, when we deny, defy, or redefine him? The end for these people, as it's described here, is to be thrust down and unable to rise. Well, Scripture makes clear that the way that we experience the love of God is in the person of Jesus. 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. The way, the main way, the number one way that God shows us that he loves us is through the person of Jesus Christ. How can we experience God's love? The answer is at the cross in the person of Jesus Christ. By his perfect life, he's an acceptable sacrifice for our sin Instead of being thrust down, as this verse describes, he is lifted up. In fact, he even told his followers, when I am lifted up, meaning put on the cross, I will draw all men to myself. And instead of being unable to rise, as verse 12 here says, he rose from the tomb, defeating sin and death forever. That's good news, right? That is good news. So we're not trapped We're not the people in this verse where we are cast down and unable to rise. Because of Jesus and his victory, we can stand. But here's the deal. You have to take him on his terms, not yours. He's not Karen AI. He's not artificial intelligence. He does not respond through chat GPT. Somebody's probably going to give this a shot one of these days. But you, you don't experience God through chat GPT. You have to accept him on his terms, not yours. You can't deny him. You can't deny him, and you can't redefine him. It is through the fear of God that his proper understanding of who he is and what he's done, especially in the person of Jesus, that we experience the love of God. Anything else, it's like you have an artificial girlfriend. You guys tracking me? All right. Well, what does this mean for Monday? I'll invite the worship team to come back up here. I think all of us, me included, we would do well to do a little bit of an audit. We'll give you a couple minutes to do that here, but I would also encourage you to do this uh, maybe on your own later today. Get away by yourself, maybe go for a long walk, especially now that the, the bad air has cleared at least a little bit. And I know this might be hard for you if you have young kids, so uh, we'll, my family will come babysit for you if you need. Um, that's fine. Go, for, go get in a quiet room, nice long walk, and I just want you to ponder, in what ways am I denying God? In what ways am I practically living as if he doesn't exist? Maybe you wouldn't call yourself an atheist, but I think as we've seen, you don't have to call yourself an atheist to live as if he doesn't matter. Does he matter to you? I want you to give some time honestly thinking about that today. Is there something about uh, one of his commands, and you're like, you know what, I see it, I hear it, but I'm just not going to do that. In what ways are you defying him? I want you to pray about that today. And in what ways am I redefining God? Have I been reshaping his words into something that's more convenient for me, or at least less inconvenient? You know, what have I been putting off or trying to work my way around so that I'm not obligated to do something that I know God wants me to do? And my plea for you today, and I'm saying this to myself as much as I'm saying it to you, is to confess that to him 
and experience his deep, deep love for you. It is through the fear of God, understanding and acknowledging who he is and his character and his plans and purposes and what he has done through the person of Jesus that we experience the love of God. That is my hope for you, my prayer for us as a church. Let's pray and then we'll sing together before we're dismissed. Heavenly Father, there is no one like you. You stand alone in your person and your majesty and your authority and your power and your glory. Lord, even from this passage, your love reaches to the heavens. Lord, there are things about the universe that we can barely understand, many even things that we don't understand at all. And yet all of it shows your love for us. And Lord, we just have to acknowledge, Lord, many times where instead of accepting what you say to us, we try to redefine it for ourselves. And Lord, show us the danger of that and remind us the folly of that, Lord, because even if we could be successful in this, we're not good at this. We're not good at redefining good and evil for ourselves. Help us to trust you. Lord, even if we could make you up, we would not get close to the glorious and magnificent presence that you are. You are a good God. You are good, you are holy, you are loving as we've seen, Lord. Your love reaches to the heavens, it is higher than the mountains, it is beyond the deeps. Lord, I pray that we'd experience that. I pray that for all of my friends here, that they would experience it today. That whatever way that we have been denying you or your authority in our lives, that we would let that go. Ways that we have been defying you, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to see the danger in that, but the folly in that, Lord, the recklessness of that. Lord, do not give us over to our own demands, but help us to trust you and confess. And oh, Lord, the ways that we redefine you, the ways that we turn you and your word into something that is less inconvenient for us, palatable for us, easy to disregard. Oh, Lord, show us, give us ears to hear, because, Lord, we would experience the deep and wondrous love that you have for us, expressed through the person of Jesus, the one who gave himself up for our sins, that we could experience you as a feast. Lord, nothing satisfies like you do. Nothing, uh, nothing satiates. Nothing is as sweet as you. Nothing is as satisfying as you. Lord, I think the psalmist has shared with us the folly of trying to define good and evil for ourselves. Lord, help us to trust you that we might experience your delight. Lord, I'm grateful for this church. I'm grateful for the work that you've done here. I pray for my friends this morning who might be thinking about this. I've been denying. I've been defying. I've been redefined. Lord, I pray that they would hear the word this morning as an invitation, an invitation to confess and trusting that when we confess, you are quick to forgive our sins, Lord. You are slow to anger and you abound in steadfast love. Your steadfast love is the overwhelming force in the universe and you have showed it to us in the person of Jesus. Lord, we love you. Lord, we, we confess the ways that we have done this. We want to make a new start even today. So I pray that you'd meet us in that. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.